welcome or welcome back. Yes, welcome to Modern Medieval the Podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And today we have a very, very exciting episode. Yes, we are very, very thrilled to be with Collision of the Podcasts with us <laughs> in a good way not not like a battle zone you know <laughs> sort of thing. two podcasts um, enter one podcast leaves yeah <laughs> cool. cool rain superior um but we're really excited this is our first kind of collaboration with another podcast and sharing insights and themes so we have sarah with us today hello hello how are you good good welcome to modern medieval Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Yes. Thank you for reaching out to us. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just going to be a fun conversation. We're really excited to talk about an article you sent us, but your research as a whole about women, about the history of like Catalan and the presence Mm -hmm. of Jews in that time, as well as Mm -hmm. um, everything else. I mean, your background is so exciting. Yeah. Uh, to us. Thank you. We know you're an assistant professor of history at Rhodes College in America. Yes. Uh, but we would would you mind introducing yourself and what your research focuses on for our audience? Of course. So I am in general I would uh, consider myself a historian of the medieval Mediterranean and I'm especially interested in topics related to gender and to religious difference and to some of the intersections between the two. Mm-hmm. So I have my first book which is currently under contract with Penn State University Press and will be out in someday in the future. I don't know maybe 2022 at this point. Oh let us but know what eventually. It is. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Bookmark that for yeah. pre-order. <laughs> thank you. But that looks at uh, basically a comparison between Jewish and Christian women's work in Catalonia in the 13th and 14th century. So mm-hmm. what kinds of things are uh, available to women in terms of ways that they can participate in the uh, economic life of the cities in which they live? And how is that different for Jewish versus Christian women in uh, about 1250 to 1350 is a period that I look at there. Right. Wow, that is great, especially because so Ello and I met at UCL, as mm-hmm. listeners of the podcast are familiar with, um, in a class taught by Professor Robert Mills. And our class field trip, we actually went to Barcelona because Professor mm-hmm. Mills is working on a, I think it's like a book or some sort of project mm-hmm. idea about Catalan Gothic and what that oh. means. And like, you know, we also went to quite a few Gaudi buildings and kind of mm-hmm. that modern medieval. So Five. we looked at, yeah, like <laughs> the architectural aspect and a little bit of the history of Catalan because it is very, very important. Mm-hmm. But we did not touch really the lived lives experiences. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, and then women, of course, yeah. in history, like <laughs> give it to us. You know, right. How did you get into um, this kind of field? Oh, well, that's actually that's actually related to some extent uh, to what I was about to say anyway. Oh, <laughs> that. Uh, so I'll just say that and then that'll be a nice lead in. Uh, yes. So Catalonia is actually in a region that really is especially rich in the kind of archival documents that I work with. Okay. So uh, I work mostly with notarial registers, which are basically big books where notaries who are public officials and uh, people who are both public officials who give authority to a contract by writing it down in the same way as notaries today, but also in this period and in this particular location are functioning essentially as quasi-lawyers in that they're the people who also have the expertise to draw up these valid contracts. And they kept their own records in these books. And so we have thousands of them for Catalonia. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. Very (laughs) impressive for medieval kind of research as well to have this mass amount of like primary source access. Exactly. Yeah. Most people see the Middle Ages as not necessarily a period in which you can do that kind of quantitative work with big data. And I really can. So I have done some work and this is like the article you read that is more focused on bringing together case studies, which is also something you can do. You can come up with these biographies essentially of individual 
people and in that particular piece, women, by looking at a bunch of this documentation. Mm -hmm. But you can also uh, do these quantitative things and say, okay, exactly how common is it for women to be doing these kinds of things uh, and kind of making those comparisons. And that sometimes is really helpful to lead into some of the kind of bigger questions. Wow. I guess that's quite interesting because I was, whilst I was reading your article, I I wondered what kind of difficulties you may have had during your research. And it's interesting that like you had like set quantitative data. So I would have thought that that would have possibly been like a challenge. Yeah, that that to some extent, the amount of data that I have is the easy part. And uh, so I... I started out, I actually started in undergrad knowing I wanted to be a medievalist, but I'd kind of come to it through reading about English queens. And so that was sort of the direction I thought I'd go in. And then my undergraduate advisor, uh, Steph Bench, who works on Catalonia as well, encouraged me to go and do a thesis working with some of these uh, documents. The hardest part in some ways when you're first getting started is learning how to read these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially because it's not even the nice medieval book hands. I'd be happy to send you a photo. It's this uh, kind of horrible chicken scratch. That's the notaries. They wrote these things down and they didn't really expect anyone but themselves to be able to to need to actually read it. So it's the kind of scrawl that you write that's your own handwriting when you don't expect that anybody else actually needs to ever make that out. Wow. Yes. I mean, as a new medieval person, you know, entering into the field and trying to just read on occasion, even just like marginal annotations to an image in a manuscript, Mm -hmm. that's still the like nicer handwriting. So (laughs) kudos to you for (laughs) learning how to decipher, yeah, this scroll. And I suppose as well, like it's medieval, like Catalan, right? Or at that time? Uh, it's in it's in Latin mostly. In yeah. Latin, so okay. there's there's Catalan words here and there. And in particular, when you get when you're getting into things like names of professions, they're sort of Latinized Catalan words typically. But right. it's mostly in Latin. But yeah, the, the script is hard. I actually always tell students who are interested in getting into this that. Uh, I did, in fact, almost cry the first time I looked at one, and I was convinced I would never be able to read them. But it's possible. <laughs> Paleography through perseverance. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go and still, she persevered. Wow. So if you're saying that you got into this in your undergrad, then I'm assuming that for your master's as well as your PhD, you focused on this same material? Or did you kind of veer off course for a little while and then return, realizing it was a passion project. I veered a little bit for the master's. So I I was really passionate about working with this material. But one of the other things that I realized when doing my undergraduate thesis was that that was actually the first point at which I realized I had an interest in this religious difference aspect and in thinking about Jewish communities. So for my master's, I actually ended up making the choice to go to the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, in part so that I could get the skills in terms of working with Jewish texts specifically as well. Uh, So I did a lot of work there, and this is something that I still incorporate into uh, my work otherwise on occasion uh, with responsa literature, which are basically questions that people sent to rabbis and their responses. Oh, that must be really... In like you must have like some gems from that, right? Oh yeah, I mean it's uh, it's almost sort of case law, and there's uh, there's one that uh, one of my favorite kind of fun ones, which I actually was the subject of my very first published article, is this odd case where it's this Jewish married couple, and she's having an affair with somebody else who is also Jewish, right. and uh, the wife and the boyfriend convert to Christianity. And then the husband at that point is like, all right, fine. yes, I'll divorce you because I don't want to be married to this person who's now Christian. And then the two of them show up uh, in a different city some amount of time later, acting like a married couple and uh, like they are Jews, the wife and the boyfriend. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And so then the Jewish community of uh, it's Toledo that they end up in are writing to a uh, rabbi, uh, Solomon Ibn Adrat, who is uh, based in Barcelona, but who is uh, quite well-regarded throughout the Iberian Peninsula in southern France. And they write to him saying, like, should we hand them over to the Christian authorities? Because we don't really (laughs) want anything to do with them. (laughs) 
Wow, that is quite a wild story. Almost sounds like a movie script yeah. or <laughs> right. like a soap opera episode or something. You couldn't make that up, really. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. You kind of answered a question I had on that decision to go to the um, Jewish seminary because you have Swarthmore and then sandwiched in the middle is the Jewish your um, experience in York. And then you go to Yale for your PhD. And I was like, that's an interesting yes. kind of rotation of... yeah experiences, if you will. Yeah, and I knew I ultimately wanted the PhD to be in medieval history specifically, and I see myself primarily as a medieval historian who also does Jewish history, as opposed Mm -hmm. to necessarily a Jewish studies scholar who happens to do medieval history. So because of that, I knew I wanted to be in more of a general medieval history program. And so that was the ultimate goal for the PhD. But I also, that was the kind of perspective in terms of, or the reason behind the master's that I did was getting the chance to build skills in something that wouldn't necessarily be the primary focus of my PhD program. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, as myself doing two masters that have nothing to do with Mm -hmm. basically what I'm doing with my PhD now. Um, you sound like you were much more on top of your goals and what you were doing. Whereas I've just been like, oh, this sounds interesting. Let's study this now. Um, <laughs> though I, I, I think all of that did lead to where I'm at now, studying hagiography yeah. and contemporary horror and just the merging of everything was yeah. worthwhile. But yes, I did not have that nice kind of, oh, if I do this, <laughs> this will help with this. Therefore, managed to mix it all well together. I mean, if what you're going to do is going to be really fascinating to read. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And another thing that you do that is so interesting and exciting, and the reason why you're here is your podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so how did you come about, you know, making your podcast, Media Evil? And you've been doing it for, you said, about two years now. I mean, that's a dedication. Mm-hmm. That's a long-term project. Yeah. So can you just share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, of course. I got interested in it in part uh, coming off of things my students said, because I realized gradually that the assumptions that my students had about the medieval past were deeply informed by popular culture, including both films actually set in the Middle Ages. Uh, so, for example, things like that, you know, use, uh, use Prime Noctis, the rite of the first night of uh, that Lords allegedly had is a myth, but it's a myth but that almost all of my students are always shocked to hear isn't true. And it's because it's depicted constantly in media. <laughs> and even things like Game of Thrones, which, of course, they know in theory isn't the real Middle Ages, but especially because... Uh, you have George R. R. Martin and the showrunners talking constantly about, oh no, well, look, we're doing this because it's authentic. They assume that it's true to medieval realities. They assume that this kind of hyper-violence is what daily life was like in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was a big part of it is that I wanted to do something to think through the influence that modern media has on people's perceptions of the medieval world and uh, to offer maybe a little bit of a corrective in terms of bringing up some of the uh, kind of big myths that we see in these films and other media and uh, how we can in fact think and, you know, what things are coming up that do reflect the medieval past and what things uh, really don't and are perhaps more about our modern ideas and concerns great <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean very in line with, with our goal but mm-hmm. you do do it in a you know your own unique way but it is in, it, and that in itself is very um, compelling with like a similar goal or way of trying to negotiate and navigate all this but you focus primarily on films television and books and we do that as well but just in listening to your podcast and ours and the way that like we approach it. It's, mm-hmm. I it's think it's exciting to hear yeah. and interesting. Yeah. To hear the different yeah. perspectives and ways of thinking to that. Cause we're both noticing the same kind of discrepancies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't really have an end to that thought. <laughs> I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> no, but it is kind of interesting. Cause I think that that, you know, similarly to what you were saying, like that is kind of what stemmed us to start. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that more people are thinking that way, you know, it's, it's always kind yeah. of validating. 
Yeah. And I also think both of these projects are really crucial right now, in particular, as a lot of the ways in which we see the medieval world showing up in modern representations is also, of course, often very disturbing, right? Because Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the United States, uh, there is this very upsetting uh, use and misuse of the medieval past by white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And so I think that makes, you know, both of these projects that we're doing really especially crucial in terms of offering some kind of corrective to that kind of image that's being promoted by that uh, very particular and obviously atrocious group. Yes, definitely. And yeah, with the medieval, I mean, especially I feel like sorrow for Viking historians, because for some reason in America right now, Vikings Mm -hmm. are, I mean, we had the Viking shaman at the, uh, that's what his name was, at the coup at the White House. And yeah, I mean, it's not our focus today, but just like how, like why? I mean, we know that the Nazis (laughs) used knights and everything, but it's just kind of, yeah, like why? Like, I don't, where is (laughs) coming from? So yeah, I do think it's important also just because the way that we try to look at and kind of sift through the way the you know tropes, stereotypes of the medieval mm-hmm. also share a lot about our current like ways of viewing history and also prejudices that we have with our current issues like racism and yeah. people kind of projecting that into the past. And this all white medieval past. And it's like, no, Mm -hmm. no, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, why do we think that that existed? And of course, right Mm -hmm. now, especially in America, um, though not exclusively, there's this reckoning and acknowledgement of white supremacy and whitewashing. And Mm -hmm. yeah, there's also quite a lot of gender uh, gender normativity, though. Oh, yes. Didn't really exist. Yes. And and our media really does, I think, uh, feed into that. I mean, because you look at something like Game of Thrones and they're basically making the claim like, well, we couldn't possibly hire a Black actor to play a major role because authenticity. So we can suspend our disbelief for dragons, but we can't suspend our disbelief <laughs> for people of color who, of course, did exist, in fact, in the medieval mm-hmm. world, unlike dragons. Yes. And it really does, yeah, kind of feed into things. And and on the gender normativity, too, I have found all of these examples of films where you have uh, representations of real medieval women. And in the film, they have less agency than they did in the actual medieval past. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this, like, overarching idea of either the church being the end-all, be-all, or, and Mm -hmm. maybe in tandem with that, just the rampant misogyny. Mm -hmm. And... In reading, like, my, for my own research and everything and looking at, like, female mystics and saints and women, and, of course, this one, like, particular aspect of society, like, I'm not saying misogyny didn't exist because it did, but it was much more nuanced and much more complex than men Mm -hmm. just being, like, I am men, you You are, (laughs) therefore, do what I say, right? Like, it, I mean, if you go to, like, biological theory and the idea that Mm -hmm. women were feared not because of like the lack of a penis or a phallus if you want to get psychoanalytic but because they had like the inverted penis that was inside and that Mm -hmm. leads to a lot of horror now because it's like a void or a hole that consumes but also produces and like Mm -hmm. just not understanding yeah media really likes to have the damsel in distress in the night which yes. can be fun don't get me wrong on occasion like princess <laughs> bride or something you know you're like yeah this is fun but it's not every story it's not every case yeah. right and uh, there's there tends to be an assumption as well that misogyny differs in degree but not in kind And that's one of the things that I think is really important that usually gets missed when thinking about the medieval world is that, of course, misogyny existed. But it's not just that it was the misogyny we have today, but worse. Mm -hmm. It was that there was something fundamentally different about it and formed by that particular culture. Yes, exactly. And it could vary by region. It could vary by timelines, like battles or certain things and just the transfer of knowledge and like expansion of different ethnic groups into different spaces because 
one thing I think a lot of people forget today is that we are in the era of globalization. Everything kind of melds at the same time in this Mm -hmm. sphere. Whereas in the middle er middle ages, we didn't have planes and phones and things (laughs) that were like instantaneous. But there was a kind of, I mean, we did an episode on Sicily and, you know, the kind of the, Mm -hmm. the interconnectedness, the, like the assumption that cultures were very distinct at the time. Sometimes that wasn't always the case. You know, you have like lots of religions living together peacefully, which is kind Mm -hmm. of something that we as modern people don't really fathom regarding Mm -hmm. the the Middle Ages. Or want to sensationalize, you know, and be like, Mm -hmm. Inquisition, even though it's (laughs) that later, or like burning heretics. And you're like, yeah, it wasn't always like that. Like there was of course, animosity at times between mm-hmm. separate, I mean, the Crusades, basically like, we will save you and convert you and take over your lands for hundreds of years and just like massacre <laughs> your people. You, sounds like a great idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I'm being a glib audience. But yes, there were also like social understandings of, mm-hmm. oh, y- you exist too. And I'm not going to necessarily execute violence towards you. Yeah, I guess just the idea of the barbaric medieval is such Mm -hmm. a prevalent idea. And it, as we always say, just not true. Right. And especially as a, yeah, and especially as a scholar of Jewish history and also, uh, you know, I'm not particularly religious these days, but I grew up in a Jewish community and grew up fairly observant. And uh, there tends to be this very prevalent assumption that medieval Jewish history is really just a story of Jews being murdered and forcibly converted to Christianity. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, happened. And anti-Judaism is very real and something that was in many ways present in people's lives. But these extreme moments of things like massacres and uh, ritual murder accusations and forced conversions are the exception rather than the rule that to the extent that they're experiencing anti-Judaism in everyday life, it's something that today we might call microaggressions, essentially. Mm-hmm. That it's uh, a kind of ex- a kind of realization of your subordinate and marginalized status in the society, but you're not constantly fearing for your life as a Jewish person, and especially in medieval um, Iberian Jewish history, that there tends to be an assumption that the expulsion is inevitable and it's really not and nor is the inquisition uh, monty python's actually right that nobody expected the spanish inquisition so you kindly um provide us, us with one of your articles between two cities J- jewish women in exogamous marriage in medieval catalonia which mm-hmm. we absolutely enjoyed reading about also yeah. because it's something that I, like at least i knew basically nothing about um and it also sheds light on a medieval subject that has often been omitted from history. And it also talks about, yeah. women, but, you know, we just, we're all for it. Um, and so we were wondering whether you could introduce the topic of your paper to our audience. Absolutely. So this is something that came out of the research that I was doing for the book, but ended up being a, a bit of a side project. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I was really struck by at looking at some of my documentation were these examples of uh, Jewish women in particular, who, uh, and a couple of cases, uh, Jewish men, but uh, situations in which somebody has to move to an entirely different city to get married. And this is something that is, especially for women, because women don't travel as much as men, is potentially fundamentally really life-changing. It Mm -hmm. uproots you. You're not going to see your family anywhere near as much. You're not going to have access to the same kinds of support networks as you might have otherwise. And that's one of the things that that this article is thinking through is thinking about how this affects some of the economic options available to women. In what ways does this make women potentially more economically vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, uh, and socially vulnerable as well in these situations where they don't necessarily have easy access to these familial connections and ties that they might have had they remained in their home cities. And then on the other hand, when a man moves to a new city, uh, I have this one particular example of this man, uh, Celtel Gracia, who moves from Barcelona to Girona in order to get married. And for him, it's a great opportunity because he gets to, uh, so he has, he he has, you know, a brother. And so he gets to kind of move to the city and he's then basically ends up effectively being treated as his father-in-law's heir. And he's the one that gets basically his city council seat in the city of Girona. He's 
the one who really is able to take advantage of his wife's family resources, whereas uh, she, after her marriage, really disappears entirely from the record. We honestly have no idea what happened to this particular woman. Based on the continued relationship between Seltel and his father-in-law, we, I would assume she's probably doesn't die in five minutes, but she's uh, just invisible in the kinds of documentation that we have. That was very like articulate, first of all, on your behalf and like very helpful because your article is so rich. There's so much information and data in it. And as a more of a literature focused person than a Mm -hmm. pure historian, it was, I had to read it twice because the first time my brain was very much like, this is a lot of facts and information, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which I know as a PhD student, that sounds sad, but reading it the second time. And yeah, like you do such a wonderful job of laying out all of these like examples. And then you have, as you were saying, the other women and they're different getting divorced or moving and their experiences with that. And I was just wondering if in relation to this, like what were the marriage laws or traditions around women Mm -hmm. during this time in the Jewish faith? Because at the end, you start to talk a little bit about Christian or Catholic Mm -hmm. examples of this, but like, what was the standard? Like, did the women get to keep their property or what Mm -hmm. was the situation with the dowry, et cetera? Yeah. So in some ways it's fairly similar to what we see in the Christian context at this time. And that uh, women do uh, typically have a dowry, which they receive from their, uh, from their family. And this is something that they then bring into the marriage. And the assumption is that it remains under their husband's control. In Catalonia in particular, it's interesting because in the Christian context, we have a a number of examples of women actually managing to recover their dowries from their husbands because their husbands go bankrupt, which is so interesting. But it's something that you can actually see in the responsa that the Jewish legal authorities are not on board with and are kind of trying to crack down on that we have examples, you know, a woman who will say, you know, well, I went to this Christian, you know, a woman goes to a Christian court and gets her dowry recovered. And then this rabbi will come in and say, no, you can't, you can't do that. <laughs> Sorry, it's not funny, but it, it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, there are some of these differences, but, uh, but also some similarities as uh, the wife uh, or a woman does in theory, at least get to uh, recover control of her dowry in the case that she is widowed or in the Jewish context, in the case that she gets divorced. And of course, coming from the perspective of thinking about medieval Catholic Christianity, Mm -hmm. uh, divorce uh, isn't really a thing, right? I mean, there's annulments under certain circumstances, but uh, divorce is uh, usually kind of a no-go, but divorce is actually fully valid within the Jewish community. It's just that the rule is that only the husband can initiate divorce. Yeah, that really surprised me, honestly, in the article was the fact that divorce wasn't a major no-no, mm-hmm. as you're saying, in regards to Christianity, because I've like heard and read that in Christianity, like of course, these are very special cases and whether or not they actually happened, but where the wife claims that the husband cannot perform sexually. And so they mm-hmm. like bring in prostitutes and like go, well, <laughs> if he can perform sexually with them. You can't get the divorce because right. at times, you know, part of the contract was that like a sexual contract to be able to make mm-hmm. children. And it was, I mean, that's obviously so extreme, but yeah, go for allowing divorce. I mean, of course, it's yeah. automatic if only the husband can initiate right. it. But the step and this is yeah, was yeah. it at, at all like seen badly, or did it have like negative connotations? Or? Yeah, like a stigma, not, or not particularly, as far as we can tell. I mean, and in particular, I think an interesting example from the article is that uh, you have that woman, uh, Reina, the daughter of Von Masit, who's married mm-hmm. to a man in Barcelona, and then after getting divorced, goes back to her hometown of Vic, and then ends up marrying a man from Girona. This is all very convenient for me because those are actually the three cities that I focus on. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've got this one person who is uh, connected to all three cities in some way. Uh, so oh, she's she's great. She's my favorite. So powerful when you found it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like no, light shining down. Like oh. Right. I know. So she's absolutely my favorite. And I'm like, oh, I'm divorced too. We're friends. Uh, <laughs> 
But the second marriage that she makes is pretty prestigious. And his family is uh, quite prominent in Girona. And so uh, it really does highlight, I think, the fact that there really isn't a particular stigma about divorce, that women who are divorced, if they want to or feel obligated to remarry, are able to do so. And there's not any real particular issue with that. And uh, that's what's been found in a variety of different places. A couple of scholars have looked at divorce in among Jewish communities in medieval Egypt, uh, working with the Cairo Geniza materials. So this, uh, mm-hmm. these kind of documents that they found in this uh, sort of accidental archive, which is basically a kind of fancy trash heap, and uh, have also found based on that, that they're, that based on looking through marriage contracts that they found there, that there doesn't seem there either to have been a particular stigma that divorced women are, you know, getting remarried without that being especially an issue socially. That's, I mean, great to hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even today there's, is There's still a bit of a stigma, isn't there? Right. It, yeah. Yeah. It can go either way. I mean, of course, you have people like Liz Taylor who had what five, six husbands. Right. But I mean, she's also <laughs> was a film actor and everything. So kind of in that outside the everyday person lifestyle. Again, I just didn't know as a whole that divorce was something that was accessible at that time in general across any yeah um, faith. Except people see like. Um, yeah, a medieval like ideal that we kind mm-hmm. of have. Yeah, and and Islam is similar as well. Actually, that you uh, oh. that you are able to get divorced, but that it is uh, except there's a couple of exceptions if I'm remembering correctly. But that typically there also it is meant to be initiated by the husband, and that that's the only problem, right? <laughs> right, is that it's great that divorce is an option, but. And this is actually still a problem in some uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities today, right? That mm-hmm. because divorce can only be initiated by the husband, uh, you know, what happens when the woman wants to get a divorce and the husband doesn't? There's obvious situations that come up in abuse cases. Yeah. Uh, so it is really a major social problem that you have this gender disparity. But it is, I think, in some ways a, a good thing, nevertheless, that divorce is a possibility. Right. One, especially during the Middle Ages, it's something that you can look at and be like, oh, well, this is considered now this kind of modern or progressive aspect of a developing society, if you will. And it's like, nope, this has been around for millennia. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) interestingly, also in the Middle Ages, it was much more, it was considered much more acceptable um, on the part of rabbinic authorities to in various uh, physical and social ways, heavily pressure men into divorcing their wives in uh, cases where the wife really wanted a divorce and there was some kind of big issue and he was refusing. That -hmm. was considered to be much more acceptable in the Middle Ages than it actually is in ultra-Orthodox communities now. Oh, wow. I didn't know. And so I guess kind of my question is today, when they reference, you know, the past, do they omit that kind of factor? Or like, oh, yeah. is it just not talked about at all kind of thing? Yeah, it's just not really talked about that they say, oh, well, it's not really a true divorce if there's compulsion. And this just, when you actually look at the responsible literature that I was talking about before, that's just clearly not how people thought about it at the time. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, and we have a number of cases that don't seem to have really raised an eyebrow of people essentially hiring somebody to beat up a man until he agreed to give his wife a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not something unheard of today. Uh, there's actually an episode of The Sopranos about this. Oh, really? I've never yeah. seen The Sopranos. It's on my someday to watch when I am able to emotionally and time-wise like invest in it. But, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, like Tony Soprano gets hired by some Orthodox Jewish man to beat up his son-in-law. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, there you go. Yeah, it is one way to get what you want. I'm sorry, my brain is still just like, divorce has been around and it's not just an extreme thing. Issues aside, I love it. And (laughs) (laughs) actually in the section that you just referenced about uh, Reina and Bonmasip, is that how you pronounce it? Bonmasip. Bonmasip. Elo and I, because so we read the article separately um, and then we go to our notes to see if we responded to same passages together mm-hmm. and at the very end of that section we had the last paragraph in its entirety highlighted but especially um this just little sentence that really stuck out to both of us throughout your whole article and it's 
gender above all dictated whether and under what circumstances a Jewish spouse or family member could tangibly and directly benefit from exogamous marriage. And it just, to us, was very like, I guess, like a crux moment in your article. Mm -hmm. And just, we are interested in gender and how it plays out in the Middle Ages, as well as now. Just the idea that it's like dictating the circumstances of these women, you know, the um, cultural or social ways of being and the patterns and just like lived experiences. Mm -hmm. It was a very powerful passage for the both of us. Yeah. It's quite amazing that we actually like, highlighted the same part. Yeah. I'm still kind of in shock that we did that. Yeah, especially because, I mean, your article is 24 pages. Like, it's not, yes. I mean, it's not one of the 80-page articles when you were like, I hope right. you have time to read this. That's what I was expecting. But, I mean, it's also a very good-length article. And, like I said earlier, just full of facts and history and people. So, yeah, out of all of that, the fact that we were both like, this seems like the most important part to us. <laughs> was I just wanted to share that because it hopefully is one that you agree was an important part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that really is, I mean, that's really what I find so important about studying gender in the Middle Ages is that it doesn't mean that women can't do anything, right? Uh, that I have a lot of very clear examples in this article and in my book project of a work that women are doing, a public activity that women are involved in. But nevertheless, we do see ways in which the gender system shapes the options that are available to them. And exogamous marriage is this really big example of this because for men, it's relatively easy to develop various kinds of connections and relationships and social networks that then are both socially, socially, politically, economically useful to them in even a new city and in moving to a new city. And that's much harder for women to do. And so uh, women women very rarely have that kind of social network outside of their immediate kin group. Or if they do, they might have it with uh, potentially with other women, but who don't all, but who also don't necessarily have the kind of capital at their disposal or their economic capital or social capital to make that relationship beneficial necessarily in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. as relationships with men often are for women. And so, uh, and so, you know, it's just that there, there are just fundamentally fewer options available to them or that they are more reliant in particular on basically what their family has to think it has to say about things and uh, the ways in which their family is willing or able to encourage them in certain kinds of economic activities. Out of curiosity, and maybe this is like, I just missed it in the article, but if I recall, all these women are the like businesses that they're involved in is money lending. Is that correct? Or were there other? Yeah. Because the women, I don't think if I understood again correctly, participate in like the business side of things that often, like what would they do? Is it just like taking care of the home or like, I'm just curious also, I guess about like Mm -hmm. Jewish women's daily lives as well, yeah. if you know anything about that. Yeah. So in terms of uh, the kind of work that women do, I talk mostly about women moneylenders in this particular article, which isn't the only thing that women or Jews were involved in, but it tends right. to be the thing that's best documented because mm-hmm. Jews are actually required to register loans that they make to Christians with the notaries. Mm-hmm. And there's also good reason for everybody involved to do so because uh, these are potentially somewhat fraud transactions. And there's something to be said for knowing for sure that there's a record that you right. lent this person this much money. And you know, then when it gets repaid, also having a record of that. But we do also know of some other things that women are involved in. Uh, Jewish women in particular seem to have done some work in the textile industry. I have a couple of examples of Jewish women who are actually silk weavers. Wow. Oh, okay. In, yeah. in that region? in Catalonia? Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, this is a bit later, but there's uh, another scholar, uh, a Catalan scholar, uh, Anari Shabad, who has done some research on Barcelona, mostly into the late 14th and 15th century, who from that period has found a lot of examples of Jewish women being involved in the coral trade, uh, actually oh. making like coral rosary beads, which is really interesting really? and which you wouldn't necessarily expect Jewish women to be involved in. No, wow. not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was just really curious because there is, again, the stereotype of, mm-hmm. well, if Jews were around in the Middle Ages, they were money lenders, and then everyone blamed right. 
you know, like the Black Plague and everything on them, like the historical scapegoats. And again, that's just problematic and not true. And Mm -hmm. I was, yeah, I was just curious also because I don't know much about this region's medieval history as a whole. Yeah, like not knowing, oh, were textiles important there? Like I know that in England, textiles were really, especially like wool and wool dyeing and Mm -hmm. all of that was really important industry for both men and women. So I also know that just because these women are Jewish doesn't mean that they aren't participating in some sort of craft or something. As you just said, I mean, they're making coral rosaries, which... Honestly, yeah. if that was a question on Jeopardy, I probably would have gotten it wrong. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> it, it makes sense. I mean, you're by the Mediterranean Ocean. Yeah. Like, that's coral lives in the ocean. And yeah. Christianity is the dominant faith. People need rosaries to pray with. But yeah, I just never would have guessed that. And so for, for this research, did you use mainly your archival, the archival work of the, of the, of the region, or did you use other things as well? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So for this, I mostly use, yeah, the, uh, the archival documentation and uh, yeah, so mostly worked with that. And so uh, you have these kind of examples that pop up here and there of, you know, women who are buying cloth or uh, raw materials on credit, for example, and so things like that. But we do also have some sense from some uh, of the rabbinic literature that the expectation probably is to some extent that Jewish women might, uh, in addition to taking care of the home, they also would probably in practice do some amount of helping with their husband's trades, whatever that happened to be. Uh, But it's often a kind of labor that doesn't necessarily appear in the documentation that we have, right? That it's, uh, that if she's doing something more behind the scenes, then this is not necessarily visible. And it also means that if it's something that's very behind the scenes, it also raises questions, of course, about the extent to which circumstances would allow her to do that kind of work independently if she needed to, Mm -hmm. right? That it's not necessarily an automatic transition from capability to do these, this behind the scenes work. That means she presumably has the skills, but the fact that she has the skills doesn't mean that she has the social connections and the access to financial resources that's potentially necessary to uh, accomplish something like this independently. While you were speaking, this is kind of tangential, but wanting to focus parallelly on another aspect of medieval history that due to, you know, a lot of Western thoughts sometimes gets ignored, but is a major part of Iberian history is the Muslim influence and like Moorish architecture and everything, which your research being in that kind of early beginning of the middle Middle Ages, because um, like 13th century is definitely at this time of flux mm-hmm. with that. And do you come across any kind of like influences of this like historic moment and the shifting of like power slash religious dynamics and how, if at all, that impacts, you know, the Jewish community at this time and exogamous marriages? It's something that doesn't actually come up for Catalonia specifically as much as it comes up for some other parts of the Iberian Peninsula, because the cities that I'm looking at are all cities that have been very firmly under Christian rule and uh, are not even really frontier zones from about, you know, like the 10th century or so onwards. Right. Or 11th, I guess. Yeah. Um, And so because of that, it's not something that shows up quite as prominently. Uh, And I actually don't have a lot of Muslim representation in my records. I might have talked about Muslim women had I seen examples of them as economic agents. Mm -hmm. Uh, But unfortunately, the only situation in which I've actually seen Muslim women are women who are enslaved. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, of course, this is, you know, the the dark side of talking about, you know, women's economic agency is that that's one of the other things that I see women as being involved in is the buying and selling of uh, of enslaved people. And so I have this uh, one woman who's one of my other kind of big women from Vic, who's somebody who's very active as, a, you know, a Jewish woman moneylender. And in a lot of ways, I'm like, oh, she's so cool. But then also I have this contract, which is, you know, her selling a slave, which is, I think, somebody, uh, a person who was basically given over to her as a pledge for a loan. And then she's then selling this person, right? And so it's this kind of horrific, this person who also is, you know, who is uh, so interesting in terms of her economic agency, but also who is very fundamentally involved in this horrific practice of transferring humans back and forth. Were slaves just from one religion or or do you find like different different faiths? 
different types of slaves, if that makes sense. So, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so essentially the rule, so, so you do have slaves who come from different backgrounds. I would say the most common descriptors for slaves in terms of their backgrounds in this particular time and place that I see are uh, the the word Saracen meaning mm-hmm. meaning Muslim, although sometimes it just means kind of of that background, and it actually says a baptized Saracen slave. Okay. Uh, and then the other is Greek, oh. uh, which refers kind of broadly, I would say, to Eastern Europe. Okay. So it's this odd dynamic. You're not really supposed to ensla- uh, so Christians are not really supposed to enslave Christians. If you have a Christian, if you have a Muslim slave and they get baptized, then you can keep them as a slave, but you're not really supposed to enslave a Christian person. But there's like, well, the Greek Christians, do they really count as Christians? Eh? <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that, I mean, that is essentially right. The attitude behind it, but also Jews are not allowed to own Christian slaves in places where they're living under Christian rule. And similarly under Muslim rule, there are kind of similar rules in reverse and Jews could own a Christian slave, but not a Muslim slave. So when you do see Jews who are clearly owning, buying, selling slaves, it is typically people who are identified as being Muslims because uh, for Jews to hold slaves who are Christians is legally problematic. Right. Well, thank you okay. for answering yes. that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is. it does sound very kind of very complex, but again, like, parts of medieval history that I really it's it is like a dark history for me I don't know much about unless you think of like feudal society right Mm -hmm. whatever wherever that is and means and the different practices with that so since Catalonia is kind of in a different historical as you were saying the influence of like Muslim history didn't like touch Catalonia in quite the same way as the rest of the Iberian Peninsula can you just elaborate on that a little bit more because it is quite unique. And of course we have, it still ripples through till today and like Catalonian yes. independence from mm-hmm. Spain and the differing of languages and all of that. So it's still very relevant, even though one could argue, you know, centuries old yet again. <laughs> yeah. And so, especially when you talk about, you know, what we would consider old Catalonia, which all of these cities that I work on fall under uh, that, that category. Uh, it really is an area that is uh, only very briefly has uh, kind of these, these intersections with Islam, but it very quickly goes back under Christian rule. And there are occasional raids and there's a big uh, Islamic raid on Barcelona in the 10th century. But as you're moving into the 11th and 12th centuries, there's the additional contact to some extent on the part of uh, you know, kings are involved to some extent with sometimes allying with, sometimes attempting to conquer various Muslim kingdoms. Uh, once you move into, say, the Kingdom of Valencia, which is very much part of the Catalan cultural orbit, that you see much more Islamic influence because that's only uh, conquered by uh, Jaume I in the 13th century. Uh, same with, say, the islands of uh, Mallorca and Menorca. Mm-hmm. But uh, Catalonia is, uh, it do- doesn't quite have that same history that a lot of the other parts of the Iberian Peninsula have. And it is really interesting from this kind of cultural linguistic perspective. In a lot of ways, Catalonia is, in the Middle Ages, much more culturally close and culturally similar, connected to southern France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, some parts of what is now southern France were actually at this period were parts that were part of Catalonia, that uh, it, Catalonia didn't actually end the Pyrenees. So the city of Perpignan, for example, uh, is uh, was a Catalan city in the 13th century. Wow, didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that whole area, uh, Roussillon today, or uh, Rosayo is the Catalan name. And uh, so that's why you see things like, you know, like the Catalan countries uh, in like in unstreet names, when of course there's, you know, only... There's only, there's not, well, there has, technically there isn't even one Catalan country, but uh, that it has this, you know, sense of, uh, we have like parts of Catalonia all over the place in all of these different countries. Mm. And it is something that really shows up still today. And that actually informs my research quite a great deal because uh, one of my kind of early, you know, my kind of first uh, memories of uh, being there and doing this research that, uh, so you know, the very first summer I was there was the summer of 2008 when I was an undergrad. And at the time I knew some Spanish, I did not know any Catalan. I knew I should know Catalan, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I would tell people that I would say, you know, and I would say, I'm so sorry. I know you prefer Catalan. I don't know Catalan. Is it okay if we speak Spanish? 
And they would say, of course, but also let me tell you about Franco. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's fair enough, really. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course, uh, because there's this medieval legacy of really being fundamentally a very different place from Mm -hmm. many other parts of the Iberian Peninsula and what's now Spain. But then also, of course, it's much more recent history of uh, Franco outlawing speaking the Catalan language. And uh, this, uh, you know, particular experience that people there have, which is lived experience still for a lot of people. Franco was in power until the 70s. Yeah, which I always forget. I always think, like, in modern history that he was just so bound to World War II and kind of, like, ended in the 50s. And then it's like, no, no, a lot longer (laughs) than that. Yeah, and I know a lot of people who are, you know, older than I am, but younger than my parents who have, you know, who had to legally change their names in the lab, you know, at some point because they, when they were born, it was not permitted to give them Catalan names uh, or first names. Uh, And so they at some point legally changed their names from the Spanish version to the Catalan version. Right. Surnames were fine though, right? Like that would have made it a very difficult administrative task to change people's surnames right right so surnames weren't an issue yeah. right that for those it was just all right those sort of are what they are but in terms of yeah giving people you know in terms of people's given names uh yeah that you were not allowed to give names that were catalan as opposed to spanish right because yeah mm. that's like a choice you make it's like exactly yeah. rather yeah. than yeah something that's like bestowed upon you indifferently right. i guess by time and history right wow my mind is like honestly humming because it's all so interesting. Yeah, and definitely. There's just like so much and not enough time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I feel like I, we could keep you here for like a whole day. And <laughs> yeah. <ask> a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess before we start to like wrap up and ask you our like quintessential final question, is there anything that you'd like to share that we haven't asked or elaborate on anything that you wish you or we could have more. Oh, let's see. Well, actually, I'm going to just end with one last, uh, I'll do a sort of plug for something that doesn't exist yet, which is, uh, but which brings together a couple of these things that we've talked about. um, And that uh, one of the things also that I find very interesting about uh, film set in the Middle Ages is that despite the fact that as a scholar of Jewish history, I know that Jews were very much present in a lot of, you know, in a lot of these, you know, cities and countries in the medieval world, they somehow just don't show up in films or almost never show up in films. Uh, With my favorite example of this being the Robin Hood story that it typically is placed in this period in the late, in the late 12th-ish centuries, uh, Mm -hmm. usually when uh, Richard the Lionheart is off on crusade and taxes are being raised in part to pay Richard's ransom. And what never somehow shows up is the fact that the group being perhaps most disproportionately taxed is uh, the Jewish community of England, which also, you know, faced a, you know, a massacre right at the beginning of Richard's reign. And the city of York was the kind of biggest one. And there was a couple smaller ones elsewhere. Uh, So I actually have an article project that I'm working on now on the absence of Jews, essentially, from films set in the medieval world, combined with a discussion of the Jewish coding of uh, fantastical and often somewhat villainous creatures in uh, medieval-inspired fantasy. I cannot wait to read that. I know, yes. And like the moment you started saying that, I was like racking through my brain. I was like, nope, 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 nope. In regards to like, yes, there is no, yeah. nope isn't, there is no presence, not you're wrong. Yeah. But like, no, there, 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 there is no character. Yeah, that is, Gosh. wow. Yeah. yeah. yeah, And yeah, Crusades films too, that you have all of these interactions between Christians and Muslims. And in almost all of these places, there are also substantial Jewish communities, which, uh, you know, in Jerusalem, for example, the Jewish community did not do well when uh, the Christians took over. Mm. And Again, something that does not show up, that they basically almost never acknowledge the fact that there are also Jewish communities in these places, which are affected by these wars between Christians and Muslims. Please send it along once it (laughs) manifested itself in a material form in the universe. We would definitely like to read that and definitely just educate ourselves as well about this. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's something. Yeah, that was it's uh, it's exciting that this podcast has actually led me also to a uh, you know a kind of article project, and so that I'm seeing kind of more intersections in some ways between my uh, my research and my uh, my side project of the podcast. So, oh, that's great. Well, we'll we'll definitely share it when it's published. With thank you very much. Yes, yes, the audience. <laughs> so, as we're wrapping up, thank you for the. Um, the plug on your soon-to-be article. And we ask this final question of all of our guests. What is your favorite medieval fact? So for this, I'm going to go in now a direction that is completely different from all of my research. Go for it. And uh, my favorite medieval fact is that there was actual devotion in the Middle Ages to the relic of the foreskin of Christ. Oh, uh, that there is. <laughs> yes, that there is. <laughs> well, actually, you say oh, that. No. Oh no. Um, <laughs> oh no. So there are a couple of churches that have uh, the relic of the foreskin of Christ. And of course, this is actually it's a big deal theologically because you can't usually have bodily relics of Christ, right? Because yeah. he was assumed into heaven. Uh, and the foreskin is maybe an exception, but it kind of makes people a little uncomfortable because you don't like how much emphasis do you really want to place on on circumcision as this kind of valid thing from a Christian perspective, right? Since they obviously stopped doing it. Um, but there are a couple of different churches that claim to have the foreskin of Christ. And there are also a couple of references to it in mystical literature. And uh, so one woman mystic, uh, Agnes of Blenviken, just had a vision in which she had uh, experienced having the foreskin of Christ in her mouth and experienced it tasting it uh, the taste that was a delicious sweetness, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> Sounds about right for any mystic and like honey or something exactly also Catherine of Siena who had a mystical vision in which she married Jesus using his foreskin as a ring really yes yeah I did know that yeah yeah that I know that the ring was like a thing for some female mystics but I don't think I knew about Agnes tasting it eating Mm -hmm. it uh, and so which churches claim to have um, foreskin yeah I did not write this down, unfortunately. Oh, I do not have them in front of me. But uh, I don't remember the exact names, but I do remember the last church that claimed to have it uh, was uh, somewhere in Italy and actually had it until the 1960s when it mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> and apparently the priest was like literally sleeping with it like in a box under his bed. Oh my it was God. very weird. <laughs> So that'll be a really fun Google rabbit hole to go yeah, down. Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I told it's a colleague of mine, I told a colleague of mine about this recently, and he's an Americanist and does not typically deal with this sort of thing. And uh, inspired by basically weird medieval facts, I told him he came up with a medieval trivia round for uh, a kind of group, something he does with some of his friends who are all very taken aback by the like weird facts that... Uh, Oh my god! I feel like they should go into a pub quiz. I don't think anyone would expect it. Oh no! (laughs) My mind just thinking about like this is so like messed up, but funny. I think is like making Christ foreskin gummies or candies. You know, like how at bachelorette parties they have like (laughs) penis gummies, but like for like a nun before she (laughs) does her vows or something. Yeah, your foreskin of Christ gummies. Yeah. Oh my god! Oh goodness! What I a fun like, way to end. I definitely think this is the best medieval fact I've ever. Heard. <laughs> yeah, I think thus far that is my yeah. favorite that has emerged. It's uh, this this is why medievalists are secretly fun at cocktail parties. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Hey, did you hear about the one time when uh, a very well-renowned mystic ate Christ's foreskin and it tasted like honey? That'll definitely get attention in a room. <laughs> well, yes. thank you so much. This has been... Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, this has been amazing. Please come back whenever yes, you want. Yes, please. Absolutely. We're happy to plug and share anything that you send our way. Yeah. Medieval Fantastic. community support. Yes. Medieval podcasters have to stick together. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. And so for our audience, can you um, tell them where they can find you if they want to learn more or give a listen to your podcast, which will be in the show notes, but sometimes yes. people don't check the show notes. Well, you can find me personally on Twitter at Sarah Ifftdecker, uh, S-A-R-A-H-I-F-F-T-D-E-C-K-E-R. 
But you can also find the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod, M-E-D-I-A-E-V-A-L-P-O-D. And uh, I probably should have just not spelled that. But uh, you can, yes, find the podcast on Twitter as well. And if you uh, go there, that'll uh, give you links uh, to the most recent episode and occasionally other posts as well. Uh, it's a challenge keeping up two Twitter accounts. So sometimes <laughs> there's not that, that much, but... Yeah. I leave Megan to it because I'm just like, I can't do it. Like, this is too much. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense for why people have social media managers because you right. think it's easy just to like post something. And then you get lost and you forget that you didn't put it yeah. on Instagram or Facebook or whatnot. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and we do also have a Facebook group if anybody is interested. So if you if you just search Media Evil on Facebook, it should pop up. Brilliant. Well, that's, yeah. we will definitely join. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And follow you. Yeah. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please um, listen to more. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Just type Modern Medieval Podcast. You can find us on social media. On Facebook, we've got both a page and a group. Just type Modern Medieval Podcast. You can find us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval. And can finally email us by typing modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. And finally, the Twitter. Woo, Twitter, last but not least. You can find us under the handle (laughs) at medieval underscore modern where we try to keep up with all our episodes and exciting medieval news when we come across it. And yeah, please share any thoughts, comments, questions, guest suggestions. We've gotten a few of those now that we're kind of- It's really amazing. More popular. (laughs) Yeah, we've been, it's so exciting. It like makes our mornings when people reach out to us. Um, So please do. Yes, please do. We're there for it. (laughs) And- our intro music, as always now, is by Trothgard, who you can find on Bandcamp by typing Trothgard, T-R-O-T-H-G-A-R-D. We normally ask people to trumpet out with us. We don't know if you would want to trumpet yeah. with us. No, I'd, be trumpet. I'd be happy to trumpet. I'd be happy to trumpet. All right, yeah, let's okay. do it again then. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello, and this is Modern Media with a Podcast. Do, 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 do.